Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for people who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm really excited to share this interview with you. I'm your host, Ahmed Yaqub Al-Mazmi from Princeton University. And I am your co-host, Kelvin Ng from Yale University. The Indian Ocean and World History by Professor Ned Alpers, published by Oxford University Press in 2014, is a very short introduction that is very concise, it's very beautifully written, and very vibrant. It is essentially an introduction to the Indian Ocean history that is meant for a general reader, someone who is maybe not necessarily knowledgeable about the Indian Ocean history or world history. It is useful in a number of different ways for classrooms. The book, rather than trying to simply be just a kind of narrative thread that you can see repeated in a lot of popular histories, it has an approach. That approach engages both major watersheds, but also the voice and role of actors in a long-durée perspective and ends with contemporary issues in Indian Ocean history and world history. By bringing them out and making them part of the narrative in a way that really engages the reader's critical faculties and doesn't trust you to know nor tries to lecture at you about the facts of Indian Ocean history, this book provides an engaging introduction to the history that I find really useful. Over the course of our conversation, we will talk about not just Professor Ned Alper's approach to teaching history, but also how he came to this project. What were some of the structural decisions that he made when putting together the narrative which attempted to write the Indian Ocean and world history? I will also ask, what can African history and global history gain from Indian Ocean world studies? To learn about those issues and more, join us and stay tuned. I hope you enjoy the book and I hope you enjoy the conversation as well. Today I'm here to talk to Professor Ned Alpers, the author of the captivating book, The Indian Ocean, and world history. By discussing this book, we will dive deep and learn about the long durée of the Indian Ocean, its history from archaeological times and back to the 21st century. Speaking from the West Coast on the shores of the Pacific Ocean is Ned Alpers, a research professor of history at UCLA. Professor Alpers' research and writing focus on the political economy of international trade in pre-colonial Eastern Africa including the manifold cultural dimensions of this exchange system, with special attention to the wider world of the Indian Ocean. He's a prolific historian who educated many generations of undergraduate and graduate students. Welcome, Ned, to New Books in in the Indian Ocean World, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your enjoyable book today. Thank you very much for inviting me. Can you start us off by saying a few words about yourself, that is, where did you grow up? 
how, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study, and any influential mentors that you had. Sure. Uh, I was born in Philadelphia and grew up in suburban Philadelphia. I went to uh, public high school, Lower Marion High School, and uh, from there, I was an undergraduate at Harvard. I was actually the first undergraduate who wrote uh, an undergraduate thesis on African history, uh, although, as I like to point out to people, W.E.B. Du Bois had written about African-Americans uh, a long time before me at Harvard. Um, and then from, from uh, really on the advice of my undergraduate uh, mentor, uh, Robert I. Rothberg, uh, I applied to the School of Oriental and African Studies, SOAS, at the University of London, which is where I went, uh, started my studies there in 1963 and finished my PhD in 1966. Uh, and uh, I had started out thinking I'd written my undergraduate thesis on uh, an American who had been the second uh, European to go to Uganda in the 19th century. And I thought I was going to work on something uh, classically East African. But when I got to SOAS, Roland Oliver, who was the professor then, had me go around from office to office, uh, meeting all the Africanists and seeing uh, you know, who they were and that they could see me and find out what I was interested in. And when I got to Richard Gray, Richard Gray uh, asked me how I felt about learning Portuguese. Now, I've actually just started to do German the summer before. So he's, anyway, he asked me this and I said, sure, why not? And he handed me, this shows you how the historiography of Africa has developed in, in just a half century or so. He handed me one of the International African Institutes, Green, they had these surveys of African peoples. And he handed me a book uh, on the matrilineal peoples of East Central Africa, which was written by Mary Too, who subsequently, after she was married, becomes Mary Douglas, a very, one of the most important anthropologists of the late 20th century. And, uh, and that was my introduction to northern, to Mozambique. Uh, so I started learning Portuguese, and uh, Richard Gray, who had handed me that book and asked me that question, really was the most important figure in, in shaping the way I approached history. Uh, I owe a lot to him. He was, he was a wonderful man and a wonderful historian and uh, sort of set me on the path that, that eventually brought me to the Indian Ocean. Fascinating. Uh, as we know, SOAS have produced a number of great Africanists who produced foundational works in the field. And I was thinking since your first book is Ivory and Slaves, Changing Pattern of International Trade in East Central Africa to the Later 19th Century, published in 1975 by University of California Press. Can you t tell us how did you become interested in the Indian Ocean world? Well, it was, it's, it's interesting. Uh, a lot of these things sort of, you know, you only come to full recognition of how you stumbled onto things uh, somewhat later. I mean, how did I become interested in African history? Well, I was, I can remember from 1954, sort of Brown versus the Board of Education and, and uh, first being really grabbed by uh, rhythm and blues. So African-American issues were what, what really brought, kind of made me aware of Africa, uh, which, and I should, should just back up and say that at, at Harvard, 
uh, Harvard didn't offer any African history until my junior year. So this was all kind of just happening, you know, and I was responding in a kind of a, a combination of gut and intellect at the same time. Uh, so when I, uh, you know, so I did my, finished my work there. And when I got to SOAS and started work doing the research, I was working primarily with Portuguese sources, Portuguese and French and, and English too, obviously, but, but the Portuguese sources were the main thing. And the main, since I was looking at international trade, there was the trade in ivory and slaves. Well, the ivory was all being handled by Indian traders, Vanillas, uh, 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 at Mozambique during the 18th and the early 19th century. This is something which Pedro Machado at Indiana University has, has expanded upon brilliantly uh, uh, subsequently. Uh, and the slave trade was really, there was not, uh, a great deal of slave trading until the 18th century, which is when French traders from the Mascarene Islands, Mauritius and Reunion, uh, started to appear at Mozambique Island and trade uh, trade for slaves. So I, even though I didn't think about it at the time, the fact of the matter was is that there was no way to study the international trade of northern Mozambique, East Central Africa, without being part of the Indian Ocean world, even though, quite frankly, I didn't think of it in that way. So the ivory was going off to India. The captured Africans were going off primarily to the uh, Mascarene Islands. And then subsequently, you know, in the early 19th century, uh, there was a big uh, export of, of uh, bonded labor to Brazil. But, uh, and then the, I guess the other half of that is that one of my uh, external examiners. So Richard Gray was my mentor. My uh, non-University of London examiner was George Shepperson, who's just died a few months ago. He was a very wonderful historian. And my other University of London advisor was Charles Boxer. And Boxer, of course, was the great historian at that time of the Portuguese Maritime Empire, and the Dutch Maritime Empire, and somebody who was very much plugged into the Indian Ocean world and really came at it from Southeast Asia. Uh, so I had that context in which I was writing about African history and kind of in a classic SOAS uh, kind of trade and politics sort of uh, dissertation. But it took me a long time before I actually confronted <laughs> the fact that I was also working on Indian Ocean history. So it was kind of a you know, through the back door, but it was there. It was always there in the work that I did. You, you know, I just, as I said, I didn't conceptualize it that way because there wasn't really any, I mean, even Atlantic studies were not, in the 60s, were not something that a lot of people were paying attention to. This is something that, you know, develops differently. So oceanic histories in general uh, evolved uh, kind of hand in glove with world history uh, over time. It just wasn't happening when I first was doing my research. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And frankly, the work that you produced and other Africanist works were really foundational to help us actually understand these connections. Without these works, I don't think it would have been possible to make these connections to start with in the, 80, in the 80s, uh, primarily. Um, so as a historian of Africa, can you share with us what can African studies gain from Indian Ocean world studies? Well, I think the biggest thing is is... What, what Indian Ocean studies 
as such does is it breaks down the uh, United States sort of Department of Defense uh, and and Department of State kind of divisions of non-Western uh, studies into area studies. So, you know, you have, if you're an Africanist, you're connected to African studies. If you're doing Middle Eastern history, you did Middle Eastern history, even there, and, and you know, I don't need to tell you this, uh, people who worked on the Gulf for a very long time were just kind of ignored in Middle Eastern studies, which is basically about the Fertile Crescent. Uh, but then you South Asian studies, and then sort of a stepchild of South Asian studies and Southeast Asian studies, and then East. And so you had all of these different things, and people didn't talk to each other. And so Africanists basically looked at this continent uh, as though in some ways it were hermetically sealed. Uh, now, people who studied the slave, the Atlantic slave trade, or, or you know, the slave trade in West Africa or whatever, obviously they're going out, you know, they're connected to the Atlantic world. But there was a way in which, in which each one of the area studies uh, were, were separately bounded. You could see that in the way in which research funding was, was distributed, particularly in the United States through Fulbrights and other things. Uh, and so what I think the value that Indian Ocean studies uh, or Mediterranean studies for North Africanists or Atlantic studies brings to Africa is that it, it, it reinforces the fact that Africa was always connected to the, to the rest of the world. It was never darkest, you know, in the, night, in the Victorian sense, darkest Africa, a, a world apart that was isolated. And at the same time, it's important, particularly in the Atlantic side, but also in the Indian Ocean side, to emphasize that what Africa brings to the knowledge of, this, of these larger worlds, too. I mean, there's no way in which you can understand the Atlantic world or the New World without factoring Africa in, Africa and Africans. As John Thornton, who was one of my students, has written about, not the only one, but who really pioneered that in many ways. And, and, uh, uh, and so in the, in the Atlantic, in the uh, Indian Ocean world, it's, uh, Africa's contribution is different. It's not as dramatic, but it's important. And, and it's certainly true that you cannot understand what, what we now call Indian Ocean Africa without understanding the inputs uh, and the connections of, uh, from the Indian Ocean world to Africa. So it's been, it's been exciting and it's been, it's been, enormously rewarding to help break down those barriers between different uh, area studies paradigms. That's very useful. Um, so in the process of uh, writing about Africa and thinking about the Indian Ocean over the last two decades, I know you've published a book in 2009 about East Africa and the Indian Ocean. So tell us how you came to write this book, The Indian Ocean World History. How did the idea develop? What was the research process like and your writing experience? Well, I, I, I thought about actually going back into my email files <laughs> to look at the correspondence. Uh, but basically, uh, this series had, uh, this, the uh, Oxford series and the New Oxford World History series had, uh, had begun already. 
and the two editors, uh, uh, Bonnie Smith and Anand Yang, had you know were were looking for for uh, areas that needed covering. Uh, and I can't remember whether I was contacted by them or by Nancy Toff, who was my editor and, and a, a brilliant editor at Oxford University Press uh, and a scholar on her own. Uh, but somewhere, somewhere at the beginning uh, of of this millennium, this century, uh, I was contacted, and it kind of fits in. It fits into the pattern that I was in. I had been, I had become. Uh, Dean of Undergraduate Studies at UCLA, which I did from 1985 in different, wearing different hats uh, from 1985 until 1996. So I came back into the Department of History uh, and I hadn't been, I'd been teaching, but mainly just seminars as part of, you know, uh, but I hadn't been doing my regular lecture classes uh, all during that period. So I had to rewrite my lectures, obviously, after 10 years. So I started redoing uh, uh, my East African class in Northeast Africa. And at the same time, the Department of History as a whole, and the UCLA's Department of History, a very exciting place, it still is. It's been, you know, become one of the leading departments, I think, in the world. And one of the things we were grappling with, like so many other places, was should we still be teaching Western Civ and requiring it of our undergraduates? And what about world history? So it was all part of that. American, you know, phenomenon of dealing with with world history, and so we we would have committee meetings and talking about it, and in the process, we at least at that point we didn't quite get to it, although we it certainly has developed now. But we thought, well, let's develop, you know, in addition to a, a lower division course in world history and who might teach it, which I never did. But let's also develop something called topics in world history, an upper division, you know, general topics class. And so I first actually taught a class on on uh, African diaspora, uh, and that's what uh, led to the very first one of these self-consciously Indian Ocean classes that I taught, or things that I wrote was about the African diaspora in the Northwest Indian Ocean, that appeared in comparative studies of South Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. Uh, that was, I guess, period '97 uh, or so, uh, and then I started teaching a class on top on the Indian Ocean in the same topics of world history. So I was, you know, so coming out of not having been teaching African history on a regular basis, at least my surveys, I kind of found that my teaching brought me into this, and it's somewhere in that connection. Uh, then I then I started uh, is when I started talking to to Oxford. In the meantime, I I published these those previously published, or one or two of them had been in pretty obscure places. That was East Africa and the Indian Ocean. And then finally, uh, after I retired, in at least became emeritus in 2013, I came up and sat at the desk I'm at right now and finished writing. The Indian Ocean and World History. Uh, so it was very much uh, at the, it was the you know right time and place. Uh, they were looking to have this area covered uh, at Oxford. Uh, I had been moving in that direction, and that's sort of the that. So the idea developed, I have to say, 
from the publisher. But the way in which the idea took shape was something that I had been working towards myself. Uh, and so that for the last, I mean, it's, I'm still writing things as an Africanist, but, um, but almost always uh, with one eye or one foot in the Indian Ocean. Uh, and uh, so I, I owe a lot to, to Nancy Toff. I mean, you, um, the series itself is interesting because it's designed, if you read the little short e uh, editor's preview, uh, the preface to, the, to my book, it really is designed as a way of as a counterbalance or a, or a response to the first initiatives in world history, which were very much about the United States. So, you know, it's a, it, there was a time, now it's not as true, but there was a period when, when you talk to European colleagues, none of them thought of themselves or taught or were interested in world history. Uh, it was very much an American phenomenon. And of course it put the United States and the West at the center of things. So uh, it was like a, an expanded version of Western civilization. And I think what the new series, what the new series explicitly wanted to do was to uh, look at different peoples and different groupings of, of uh, important regions and to sort of put them at the center of things so that World, the teaching of world history became quite a different, uh, it, not only the teaching, but the, the thinking about world history and the researching about it became quite a different, uh, quite a different phenomenon. And I have to say, uh, I don't consider myself to be a world historian in that sense. I mean, there's a kind of a literature, you know, uh, partly goes back to Manny Wallerstein and people like that, but it's, it's not something that I've been concerned about. I've really been especially concerned about the Indian Ocean. And I came at it, as so many people initially have, from the base in which I was trained as an Africanist, or in the case of Mike Pearson as a South Asianist, uh, or uh, Peter Reeves as a Southeast Asianist. I mean, this is the way all the early, or even Auguste Toussaint, uh, who was the uh, archivist in Mauritius. I mean, each one of us in our own time and place has come at this from the base that we were trained in. What's been utterly fascinating for me is to continue to educate myself about the rest of the Indian Ocean world. And now I find that my reading is predominantly across the Indian Ocean world rather than narrowly is the wrong way to put it, but rather than exclusively Africanist. So the things that I might have been reading when I was teaching regularly history of East Africa or history of Northeast Africa are not things I look at. I try to stay in touch with them. But the things that I tend to be reading are, you know, books like Monsoon Islam or, you know, or things about Southeast Asia. Uh, because I feel it's important to keep up with that uh, in a way that that uh, that I, as a historian of the Indian Ocean, I really need to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, honestly, if I would mask your identity and just read the book, I wouldn't assume you come from an Africanist background because you do such a wonderful job in covering the entire uh, history of the Indian Ocean 
in a way that brings the best out of you know different regional uh, literatures about each part of the Indian Ocean in one cohesive narrative. Um, I'm curious that, how, how I should say that that's exactly what I wanted to achieve. I mean, mm-hmm. it was there. There are two sides to that. Akhan. One is that you know if you go to uh, Kirti Chowdhury's very important, at least the first one, you know, uh, about the Indian Ocean, where he does mention Africa. But, you know, when he talks about, you know, he moves on to the bigger book, the later book on, on the Indian Ocean, and he explicitly says, well, Africa is not very important. So there was always that, that, that you could write, you know, people would write about the Indian Ocean. And as Mike Pearson said, you know, India sort of dominates the center and and dom- and to the extent that it, historians of india cared about the ocean at all i mean you know for a very long time and still a very land continent subcontinent dominated historiography uh africa was just sort of secondary so i wanted to make sure that africa including madagascar is one of the things i've always because of my mozambique channel kind of focus I wanted to make sure that Madagascar was part of that, but I also wanted to make sure that Southeast Asia was. And one of the one of the, as he admits, uh, one of uh, the things that was completely missing in Mike Pearson's Indian Ocean book is he says almost nothing about Southeast Asia uh, and and the Eastern. You know, it's a very much an if kind of an Arabian Sea version of the Indian Ocean. So I was really driven. So in my teaching, I taught the, the I taught the class on topics in Indian Ocean history or the, or the history of the Indian Ocean in world history at UCLA. I must have taught that about five times. So it gave me a chance to work out how I wanted to do this and what I wanted to emphasize. And it made me read voraciously. I mean, first of all, I, I had some background, not background, but at least I'd done a lot of reading from the beginning of my graduate studies on, on South Asian history. I mean, I, my, my, <laughs> to the extent that one did anything at SOAS other than research, uh, you know, my reading was all about my research. Uh, so basically, uh, I hadn't had any of that kind of stuff, even as an undergraduate. I mean, just think about it. <laughs> think about American education. It was kind of woefully inadequate for what I was, you know, being prepared to do. So, but you learned, you know, the whole, as, as people constantly say in education, the whole point is to, to learn to, to learn to learn. So I knew how to do that. So I'd read a lot about South, about South Asia and, and, and a fair amount about the Gulf and the, and, and the Middle East. And then I started to read about, you know, South China and all of the, all those connections in Southeast Asia. And it was, and you know, you begin to see parallels. I mean, I'd known for a long time, for example, that there were interesting parallels between uh, southwest of the the uh, the Mapillas, for example, the sort of southwestern India and the Swahili coast. Uh, and I remember doing research in Goa in nineteen God nineteen sixty seven and being struck by how the coast, you know, Kalangut Beach looked pretty much exactly like the Swahili coast that I knew from East Africa, from Tanzania. Uh, and then when I started reading about uh, Southeast Asia and Indonesia, I could see, you know, other parallels. 
and so it became very and then and then to extend it to obviously you have to include the south china sea and then the whole thing was to come up with a balance and uh and so achieving a balance was really important to me so that there was uh, and i would uh, the other thing to point out here was that at that time it wouldn't be quite as hard now but at the time for me the hardest thing to get a handle on was the bay of bengal uh which didn't have it which had a literature that didn't seem to fit in uh so it was hardest for me to sort of get that you know get that wrap my head around that but in the end it was that balance that i wanted and i wanted it to be so that the africanists could say the africanists could say oh yeah he's got there's plenty of africa here but they couldn't but everybody else couldn't say it's skewed towards africa and that so that that balance that you pointed to that is something i really worked to achieve and am really pleased with the result uh, that that i was able to get uh, in in doing that and uh, and i think it's important because otherwise it becomes not the indian ocean it becomes i mean how you define the indian ocean is a, is a interesting question altogether too but it becomes a much more it becomes a narrower uh, uh oceanic world mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and also uh beside actually presenting a balanced uh, portray of the history you also uh, i i feel like you've included a lot of your teaching experience and writing this book which is really accessible to students um The book is very rich, and I would like to start talking about its chapters. So let's turn now to the book and its chapters. Sure. The book tackles many themes and takes on a long durée perspective from archaeological times all the way to the 21st century in less than 150 pages, which is amazing. Can you share with us how did you organize the book chronologically and geographically? Also, how were you able to bring in human agency and individual voices within this panoramic view of the Indian Ocean? Okay, well, the uh, I was the the earlier part is easier. The hardest part for me to do was the was the last century. Quite frankly, I mean, I'm not. Although I've written about things in you know. colonial and post and and uh well, kind of anti-colonial uh historiography uh it's not what i really do i'm sort of an 18th and 19th century guy in terms of my basic research and and uh because of my connect my interest in and my work that i've done in um, coastal east africa i was always interested in the earlier period and of course you their use immediately everybody starts with a periplus of the of the Erythraean sea so that takes it back to the roman period but the other thing is that there's been so much interesting work by archaeologists on the movement of uh, uh food crops uh, across the indian ocean that it was just it just seemed like a natural thing to start as far back you know without talking about homo sapiens leaving africa or anything like that 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 it was easy for me to to start uh in that period i the, the imagining indian ocean the indian ocean the first chapter of the book which tries to set a way to think about the ocean comes from a paper i i co-organized a, a huge 
Jamboree conference at UCLA with my colleague Alan Roberts uh, in 2002, and it was a it was a huge affair. Uh, we never published a volume out of it. Uh, we we sort of started thinking about it, and then one thing <laughs> one thing happened after another, and so we didn't in the end. But uh, I I gave that a version of the imagining the Indian Ocean uh, chapter as a as the keynote to that conference. So that was sort of I had it, you know, in my kit bag ready to go and and then revised it. Uh, but in terms of the the rest of the chapter, so after the ancient Indian Ocean, then there's the whole issue of you know the Islamic Sea issue and the question of whether it is an Islamic Sea and and it's clear that after the rise of Islam, uh, Islam becomes and and uh, what now I might talk about I don't think I do in the book, but uh, an Arabic uh, cosmop cosmopolis you know which is something that uh, Rita Ricci has written about after the uh, following the notion of a of a, a Buddhist uh, cosmopolis. So I had that chapter sort of, and of course the other thing is that it, it spans the entire Indian Ocean world from from uh, Indian Ocean Africa all the way to China, uh, uh, and then then I then I thought that you know this chapter I I really kind of thinking about how do you phrase how do you get away from the Portuguese coming and calling it you know the Vasco da Gama era the K M Panagar kind of notion of the Portuguese coming and dominating everything. So that's why I call this next chapter of intrusions and transitions in the early modern period. And then I go to long 19th century. What's interesting about that, there's been a subsequent, very interesting article written about the long 18th century. And of course you can do this with any century. Uh, uh, that's, the, that's the interesting thing about, about periodization. But I really felt that the long 19th century was kind of the way to approach this. It allowed me to go up into the 20th century. Um, and then when I finally, and, and as I said, I struggled a lot to figure out how to frame the last chapter. Uh, and I decided to build it around uh, oil, if you know, and kind of and the transformations that come with that. And one of the things about the whole approach, I wasn't. This is, I wasn't told, you know, you have, you're supposed to cover everything. Uh, but I felt very strongly both for the early period and for the contemporary period that that I wanted to make sure that we had the whole that the whole thing was somehow covered in the in the in the space of this short book because for the most part when people write about the indian ocean they kind of say well you know it sort of ends at 1900 they it's like you know the end of history <laughs> sort of a notion and i didn't want I, I didn't feel that that was appropriate and of course we've got we've now got a much richer literature that indicates that there you know there is some real substance to, to the notion uh, of that, but I wanted I, so that's why I felt I really felt obliged. I wanted to make sure that it didn't stop as most Indian Ocean surveys did with with colonialism. Uh, so anyway, that's how I approach it. And then in terms of how uh, bringing human agency and individual voices, that was very much Nancy Toff. 
my editor was wonderful at that. She said, we really, you know, you've got to have voices here. So that forced me to go looking. Well, I mean, I, you know, I had, uh, I've been doing a lot on, uh, on, lib on a liberated Africans and, and seeking African voice, but then I needed to find other voices. And so that sent me to both primary sources and, um, and you know, winkling out of voices from other parts of the Indian Ocean from various scholarly studies, uh, whether they were poetry or inscriptions or whatever. And so, and in fact, those, the, the, in some ways, uh, the only frustration of the book when people contact me every once in a while and say, well, where do you get this source? Of course, I have a vast archive of stuff, but the only references are to the direct quotes. Uh, and uh, so that was very much part of that series. And I have to say, I haven't read through all the other volumes in the series to see to what if they do it uh, as much as I did. But I really enjoyed doing that. And, and it, I think it, I'm glad to hear that it brings, you know, it, it brings a sense of, of humanity to the, uh, to the broad strokes of you know of narrative interpretation mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you've done such a wonderful job in bringing so many voices from different parts of the indian ocean as well as different genres of writing whether they are sailors whether they are poets and so on uh, the book is divided in six chapters and the first chapter is called imagining the indian ocean you propose in your writing to think of the oceans as connecting barriers in which cultural exchanges take place. The temporal construction of when and this the special delimitation of where are essential for oceanic history as both reality and the idea of the Indian Ocean have changed over time, as you say. According to the famous historian of the Mediterranean, Brodel, he said that the first problem in writing about bodies of water is the question of frontiers. So how do you define the Indian Ocean? How far does it extend as networks, diasporas, and circulations in Asia and Africa over time? And how do you use the terms foreland, homeland, and hinterland in your writing? Ah, <laughs> okay. So uh, part of the barriers in a way, I've, I've already addressed that. I mean, part of the barriers were the barriers erected by area studies. Uh, the, the kind of, I think the key elements in thinking about this were one, Mike Pearson's deeply influential article on literal society, uh, and w uh, an idea that I adopted in writing about the Mozambique Channel uh, that appeared in the uh, East Africa and the Indian Ocean book. So, so you know, there were, how are people connected to the Indian Ocean? Um, and I think one of the things that, that was probably driving the way I wrote this is when I taught his, teaching the history of East Africa, you know, when I, when I first started studying as an undergraduate, East Africa meant Kenya, Uganda, Tanganyika as it then was, and Zanzibar basically British East Africa. Uh, and except that when you started to study things like the Swahili coast and the, the medieval period and looking at a place like Kilwa, and you realize that it was built on the control of the gold trade, which came through 
oceanic routes from southern Mozambique, and that the gold comes in the Zimbabwe plateau. You realize that East Africa in that period has one definition, and East Africa in the 19th century is all north of the Zambezi River, and East Africa in the 20th century stops at the Ravuma River, which is the boundary with, with, Mozambique, with Mozambique. And you know, so, so one of the things I was aware of in thinking about the Indian Ocean was like different periods of time. When, you know, when, is, when are they important? So a good example is when is Australia important in the Indian Ocean? It's not that there weren't uh, Papuans, people like that, going in across the straits to northern Australia thousands and thousands of years ago, but it wasn't as historically significant until Australia is settled, uh, conquered by the, by the British and becomes, you know, part of the Indian Ocean. So, so one of the things I, so from that point of view, China's always important. And the Red Sea is always important. I'm sort of, and the Gulf is always important. Uh, the, uh, I sort of, I guess I mostly stop at the Philippines. <laughs> you know, that, that the Philippines are, are an interesting phenomenon. Where do they, where do they fit in? Uh, so that, so that it, you know, it depends what period you're talking about. And also in terms of what you think is historically significant. So, uh, in talking about slaving, for example, uh, you know, there's Jim Watson's work that helps you to understand that things are happening in the eastern side of the Indian Ocean uh, and not just on the western side of the Indian Ocean. So, so defining the Indian Ocean really depends, I think, your time and place are, have to be taken into consideration. You can't just mechanically move around and say, well, Cape Town or the Cape Province clearly becomes part of the Indian Ocean world at a certain point in time. But what's the point of, you know, to what extent is it important to talk about that, uh, that far south on the African continent in earlier periods? You know, and so you make, you make those kinds of decisions. They have their own importance in their own histories. But uh, there, there has to be a kind of a, if you like, a border flexibility as to how you how you approach these things, and, and, and it's worth pointing out too. Brodel is a good example of this. You know, Brodel has a, is such an important book, but basically he ignores North Africa. You know, there's not very much about North Africa in Brodel's ver version of of the Mediterranean, uh, as many people have pointed out. So, so. Uh, each historian who comes to a topic like this is going to define things uh, in, in different ways. Uh, some of them are kind of too obvious to be ignored, but others are going to really depend on the particular interests, the particular flows of, of influences that one sees uh, and, and how these are approached. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I really find the terms that Michael Pearson proposed uh, for the homeland and hinterland and foreland are useful. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, was, that was something, you know, I, uh, like many people, I uh, started looking at, uh, you know, I was reading his work and I thought, well, that, 
that makes sense. I mean, quite frankly, Umland's, you know, it's a geographer's term, uh, but foreland makes a lot of sense. Hinterland, what's, what's useful about Umland is that it, well, to take the hinterland, this, the Zimbabwe Plateau is clearly a hinterland of Kisawani in the 14th century, 13th and 14th century, because that's where the gold comes from. But, you know, it's clearly not the Umland. <laughs> and so, so I thought that, that that's why these were useful terms to at least, you know, that in a sense, somebody had thought of something, you know, geographers much more precise about these kinds of things and it gives you a sense of of where because uh, all of these you know start looking at the literal coastal lines and all of these towns had you know they if they weren't producing all of their own food and all of their mar marriage partners and everything themselves or with people from overseas then they had to be drawing upon you know the, the mainland or whatever you know some part of, of the continent or the island interior that they came from. And so that's where Omland's a, a, a useful term. Uh, and uh, it's the kind of thing that, it, and I can't even remember if I ever did this. I probably did at some point. If you were having IDs, you know, like a quiz, you could ask your students, what is an Omland? But, but, it's, uh, <laughs> but it, it's, it's the sort of thing that helps to, to make it just, Make a distinction. I've I've done a uh, I've done a chapter sub subsequently in this big book on Af Africa's islands. Uh, Toyin Falola and several of his former students have, have edited that came out a year or so ago. Uh, so I talk about Africa's Indian Ocean islands, and one of the things I began to think about was distance and how you how you define them. Uh, and you know, and so that's that's a, a different version of of uh, of the hinterland, umland, and foreland, since islands are obviously all in some version of foreland. And it made me think about uh, a typology, which is of maybe of some use. I mean, I don't think it's, you know, it's not a great explanatory thing, but if you look at islands uh, and Africa's islands in the Indian Ocean, some are just, you know, at low tide, you can walk over to some of them. But some, in other words, some are very close they're, you know, they're just off the, off the main. And then others are a little farther away. Uh, and size also is a factor here too. So clearly there's a difference between, let's say the Comoro Islands uh, and Madagascar, which is, you know, continental in size, than there is from Mozambique Island, which is, you know, right there. Uh, and then there are islands in the Indian Ocean, uh, like the Maldives, uh, that are clearly connected to Africa, in fact, connected to West Africa through the cowrie trade, but which are, you know, very different. I mean, they're they're in the middle of the ocean. They're quite different. So, so I think that that in terms when you're dealing with vast geographical areas and trying to make sense of them historically, it's 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 useful to have some of these terms to to uh, to call upon. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm thinking about oceanic connectivity. Uh, can you briefly tell us about seafaring technologies development uh, and the monsoon it, system and how does that differentiate between 
the Indian Ocean as compared to the Atlantic and the Pacific? Well, they clearly, uh, you know, once you get in a boat and get out and try to get out in the ocean, you have to learn about how things work. And if you look at the Atlantic, the way in which currents work in the South Atlantic, you know, clearly had tell us a lot about how Brazil developed, for example. Uh, but in the Indian Ocean, I mean, the, the, the existence of the monsoon has a double importance. One is, is the, uh, the way in which, the regularity with which the monsoon over the last several thousands of years uh, figures enables sailors to move from the northern parts whether it's from India to East Africa or from, or from China down to, to the Indonesian uh, islands, the uh, insular Southeast Asia, the monsoon enables uh, travel because of its regularity. So it means that, that, you know, at certain times of the year, when the Northeast monsoon is blowing, that people can move from, one, from the north to the south, and when the Southwest monsoon is blowing, they can go back. And, and, and then from a historical point of view, what's so interesting is that in between, it's not possible to sail. And there are times in the Southwest monsoon, for example, when you can't get out of the Indian ports at all. But what that means is that sailors who've come down and either miss the monsoon going back or decide to stay are stuck where they are for a few months. And it's that being you know, held in port for a number of months that leads to all kinds of fascinating developments. Uh, most notably, uh, the interaction of sailors who are all men, basically. It's a very androcentric uh, occupation with local women. Uh, and so, you know, the development of Swahili society, of Akila society, all kinds of things uh, come, come out, out of this. Uh, the other aspect, obviously, is the impact that the monsoons have on agriculture uh, in, in Asia and in Africa. Uh, and so it's got a double issue. Now, there's, it's worth pointing out that uh, uh, the work that Gwyn Campbell's been doing in, in, at McGill is really, with his emphasis on, on the environment, makes the point that there's a lot more to the Indian Ocean than the monsoon. And that's really important there. The, the currents, the uh, ENSO, the uh, the uh, uh, all of these things that affect weather patterns over the long durée are really uh, are really important. But the monsoon is is a kind of uh, a, a, without being mechanical about it, it's an it's an important element that makes the the movement of people and the exchange of ideas that go with people. Uh, and of uh, and of genes and everything else, uh, really important. Um, and in terms of the sailing techniques, initially, I mean, you start looking at the, there's been a, there's a lot of interesting work, and there's some there's some uh, some of the uh, articles that have appeared on uh, Southeast Asian on Indian techniques of on on African. Give you a sense of how, uh, and on on, on Chinese uh, naval technology, these are 
just fascinating because the, the ways in which pe people bring their indigenous understanding of the technology to oceanic sailing. So for example, the, the, uh, the, the difference in um, large boat construction from, from China to India is quite different because the Chinese boats largely develop, ships developed out of, initially out of river craft. Uh, and so that they're constructed differently. And, and the over, and again, these, it's important to recognize that these things didn't just pop up fully formed. There's a, there's a critical exchange of technology that occurs. So that, I mean, the best example, obviously, are, are so-called DAOs uh, in what the Western Indian Ocean, which end up having elements which might be Chinese, which are certainly influenced by Portuguese caravels, uh, uh, in terms of the, the height of the poops and poop decks and things like that. Uh, and, and that there's a huge uh, variety uh, of shapes and styles uh, and sails and sailing techniques. There's a, whole, there's a whole technology there which is written about in bits and pieces by different uh, authors, but, uh, but like... Uh, uh, Dionysius Aegeus writing about dolls that are that are you know that are really really important. The other, I guess, the other thing to say about this is that for a long time, sailing uh, uh, and communication in the Indian Ocean world was coastal sailing. Uh, that people, it took a long time for sailors to feel that the technology that they had and their un understanding of the ocean, its currents, the monsoon, other elements, that they could go out into the open sea. And by and large, you know, the open sea was a dangerous place, you know, quite apart from those European maps with monsters uh, in them. It was, a, it's dangerous. It was dangerous enough coasting, but coasting, if you kept the land in, in your sight, you know, you had some you know, you, in a sense, had one arm reaching out to that uh, to that more solid uh, terrain. But eventually, of course, people learned how to how to master this, and uh, and so that the whole development of that technology is just uh, is a really important aspect of of uh, Indian Ocean history in general. Thank you so much for that. Um, and I was actually really interested when you're talking about all these different indigenous or vernacular forms of understanding the ocean and different seafaring technologies. To really go back to the ancient Indian Ocean, which is the focus of, of your second chapter, what sources, manuscripts, or archaeological evidence are available to us as historians today on the ancient Indian Ocean? And where can they be located? Well, most most of the gosh, uh, a lot of the work is a lot of the I guess a lot of the work appears in various archaeological journals. There are very few. I mean, you know, what are primary sources? Actually, I, I should say that one of the things. This is a question I know we're going to get to eventually. But one of the projects I'm working on right now is I'm. Uh, co-authoring uh, a 
a um, teaching text for teaching Indian Ocean history. It's part of a, a Duke University uh, series. I'm doing that with uh, Thomas McDowell at uh, the Ohio State University. And so one of the things is, is you know, what are the sources for, for these early histories? Well, they're, you know, there's, there's not a whole lot, there's not a whole lot. Uh, so there, there, are, there are literary sources uh, which are very demanding, and, but they also tell you something, something like the Periplus of the Erythraean Sea. Uh, and, and even that's an interesting thing. So there's, there's a, there was a 1912 translation by Schoff, which has been digitized several times and is available online and would be easy to use for students. But the translation isn't the best translation <laughs> because it's written in Greek. Uh, the best translation is uh, Casson, Lionel Casson's version, which was published by Princeton, I think 1989 or something like that. Uh, and uh, that's not digitized. So, uh, so from a teaching point of view, you know, you have to do certain kinds of things. But what's, just to take the, uh, the technical side there, he doesn't say anything about shipping as such, but, he, but the, the author of the Periplus, which is for, for your listeners, is a first century uh, CE, uh, basically a trading manual by a, a, uh, a Greek Alexandrian uh, writer, somebody who probably had been a trader himself and then sat in Alexandria accumulating more information about, about the, the so-called Erythraean Sea, which means the Red Sea. Uh, but when he talks about uh, Barigaza, for example, trading in, in the, up the Gulf of Kutch in Western India, Northwestern India, you know, he tells you that you have to have, that it's very dangerous because there are shoals and everything and you have to have local pilots. So that tells you something about how, you know, probably the draft of ships and where you had to go. Uh, so there's sources like that. There's some other Greek sources. There are certain uh, in, kind of literary sources from uh, Indian, and then there's there's the, all the fourteenth, the fifteenth uh, century Chinese sources for when the Great Ming treasure voyages uh, uh, went out. So so we have we have a certain level of literary sources, and then there's a lot of archaeological stuff and and. Marin, what's interesting here is that this is really ethnographic in lots of ways because the the uh, writing about uh, indigenous shipping in let's say Southeast Asia depends on dis literary descriptions uh, of the early modern period, for example, in the 19th century, uh, drawings, uh, contemporary drawings, but then people going out and actually studying. Uh, how these things were made by the few people who still know are still making them, and uh, there's very little in the way of uh, maritime archaeology. Now they are, there have been some important discoveries that have been made in the last 15 years of shipwrecks, but for the most part, uh, this is you know these are few and far between. Uh, so there, and and to find those sources, you basically have to just scan the regional journals, uh, the collections of essays uh, on, on Indian Ocean uh, sailing, uh, Indian Ocean shipping, 
Indian Ocean trade, uh, and uh, and you have to be pretty con- comprehensive about it. Uh, going from you know very early periods, uh, uh, like looking at Harappan trade, uh, it's clear that there were there was maritime there were maritime connections. What kind of boats did they use? So you you basically have to just you know blanket this. <laughs> the uh territory and and try to read everything you can and there there are you know there are specialist journals uh that talk about uh uh about maritime and oceanic history but but a lot of this stuff appears in regional journals and small journals uh and you just have to you know you just have to stay on top of it uh it's it's not easy to find this material uh, it's just no getting around it so just to stay with the topic of trade in the ancient Indian Ocean for a bit longer, what was the relationship between the oceanic trade in commodities and the sacred geographies of Buddhism and Islam? How did um, diseases and environmental factors like the plague impact transoceanic trade? Well, I mean, the uh, sacred geographies before the rise of Islam are kind of uh, there's been actually a fair amount of work on on uh, Buddhist networks uh, in South Asia, Southeast Asia. Uh, uh, a number of people, but the person I know best is uh, Himachu Prabharay, who's uh, a major Indian archaeologist, but who's who's done a lot of work on this. But there, uh, so it's so it's clear that. Sacred geographies and uh, and trade uh, networks that often over you know could overlap for obvious for I think for fairly obvious reasons in terms of the Western Indian Ocean that that doesn't until the rise of Islam that doesn't seem to be uh, doesn't seem to be the case I mean I'm sure that there are uh, I know there are studies of you know the movement of Christianity, for example, to Western India, uh, and that those connect up with you know with uh, different sacred geographies. But but it's but it's it quite frankly is something I don't know very much about. I, in terms of the plague, there you know there there the studies of the plague are sort of don't go much beyond the Eastern Mediterranean, North Africa. So it's hard to know uh, in any specifics how they affected this, but it's clear that the plague of Justinian had a major impact on on the ancient world and the way in which you know uh, goods were able to move around. And so I think I've got one. I've got a basically, if you like, a throwaway line at the end of that chapter about the plague. But there's there is not there is you know. We we don't know anything about uh, you know whether it had any kind of an impact uh, uh, through most of the Indian Ocean uh, most of the Indian Ocean world. Um, so that's about you know pretty much all, <laughs> all I can mm-hmm. uh, all I can say about about transoceanic trade. But it's clear that it's clear that 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 trade uh, that this. This also intersects with with one of the things that Campbell is writing about, 
uh, with kind of changes in longer term environmental patterns in, uh, in the Indian Ocean world. And so that there's a period where you know, trade doesn't just continue to start at one point and just continue to evolve and get bigger. It, it has periods where it, there are serious fluctuations, uh, which shouldn't surprise anybody who's familiar with, with the contemporary world in terms of how uh, there are ups and downs in, in how this trade, how trade develops. So. Mm-hmm. And I really find these nuggets and bits of pieces of information are useful also for the students to pick on and further research maybe. Um, so that's really a, a good uh, starting point for anyone who would like to, you know, pick up a research agenda. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, think, I think, you know, you can do this in a lot of ways. It's one of the things we're, we're struggling with in this, in this uh, primer. Uh, uh, Picking on an individual, you know, for a student, picking on an individual commodity, and having, you know, delved on it. One of the things I used to do, for example, in talking about the spice trade, was a little later, but uh, although you can push it earlier, is to, is to show what spices, you know, how spices evolve. They're not just something you buy in the supermarket. You know that, that look like whatever you're talking about—nutmeg or clove or something. They, they, you know, they evolve from plants. And when you start having the trees or whatever it might be, there are people who harvest it. I mean, it's a good—it's a—it's a good way to get into, to go from the commodity to the form of production to the people who actually produce it and how that affects their life. Uh, so that's you know, and you can do the same thing with technology. I'll give you an example. One of the, the most exciting things for me was um, not so. It's about three or four years ago. I was at a conference at uh, NYU Abu Dhabi, and then went up to Doha, and then went down to uh, Oman. I'd never been in Oman before. I I really liked Oman. I like it. And uh, Eric Staples was there, and he was sort of my host. I'd met him in Abu Dhabi, and we went out one day up uh, to, uh, up to Sohar because he had identified uh, uh, an artisan who was going to make him a shasha, which is you know the reed, the small reed boats, uh, coastal fishing boats. So I have spent a whole day watching this guy with. Uh, reeds and hemp rope. Uh, uh, actually, uh, I wasn't there for the final day, but take something that was just nothing, and you know, a piece of sand, and start putting these t- things together, and 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 showing and Eric and his and uh, his colleague uh, who was with him as uh, an Omani guy how to make this and. And it was fascinating because it, you know, it was, here's this, hardly anybody's doing them anymore. They're using, you know, plastic boats and things like that now, but there was still somebody who knew how to do this. And I think that understanding that uh, technology develops from people doing things is really important. And it's a, it's a good way to humanize all of these things. Cause there is that problem with, with you, if you just talk about trade, it's sort of like it's you know they're just things and, and it's hard it's people some students sometimes have a hard time connecting connecting that to people 
Fascinating. And, and that also connects to the idea that uh, prior to the Portuguese, uh, Indian Ocean communities did not use nails. Um, and that was a living example of preserving that tradition. Um, well, it, de- it depends what you're talking about, because they did use nails in, in Chinese boats. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> um, so during this period between the uh, late antiquity of the 6th century, we moved to the 7th, 8th, and 9th centuries in chapter 3, uh, which you called Becoming an Islamic Sea. So what qualifies the Indian Ocean during this period as an Islamic Sea? Well, I think the, the rise of Islam and the fact that, that and the expansion of Islam, uh, you know, one aspect of that is obviously land-based, you know, like the the Islamization of North Africa, for example, or the movement across uh, to Sindh uh, in Western India. But, but, you know, once that initial period and then the whole rise of the different caliphates and things, you, you know, people are going out and they're, they're moving along uh, maritime trade routes, which had, had previously existed uh, in some senses, but they're carrying their new faith with them. And, and then what's fascinating is the, the way in which Islam and Arabic and Persian become together. And I'm in this case, including Islam as a lingua franca, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's more than just language. It's language and, and culture and behavior. How these, be, these become uh, a way of integrating with everything that they carry, large sections of the ocean, which had not been so well integrated in the past. So, the, you know, the, in some ways, the best example of this is from a slightly more recent period. Uh, you think about uh, the work of uh, Fahad Bishara, uh, the way in which both Indian and uh, Arab you know, even though if they, you know, not necessarily all Muslims are even following the same uh, particular uh, kind of Islam, that Islam, that Islamic law provided a way to adjudicate issues between different uh, communities of, of traders. So there are sets of ideas, uh, and, and obviously Islam had a universal attraction uh, to Many peoples, uh, it was flex, its flexibility, uh, the fact that people. Of course, this is <laughs> this led to some serious problems in the current situation with uh, you know with people saying that there's one way and one way only, but but the fact that you could bring your own beliefs and find something in Islam and not have somebody say no no you can't do that uh, the way let's say Christian missionaries would do that you know you can only you know. Pick, pick an obvious example, you can only have one wife, and you, you must go to church and have, you know, there were lots of, so, so, that, so that as trade expanded in this period, and it was a period of expansion, both in the Western Indian Ocean and also from China, that when you start having these connections and have, you know, significant uh, Persian communities, uh, as Muslims in China, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's really important. Islam becomes a fabric that, uh, and and the cultures that are carried with it, uh, becomes a fabric that links the whole Indian Ocean. Now it's fascinating here, for example, 
that to take an area like Insular Southeast Asia, you know, it takes, it's much, Islam comes much later to, to Aceh, for example. Uh, and I don't ask that question, but an interesting question could be to, you know, why when Islam is spreading so extensively across large parts of this, why are some areas not accepting it? Well, they have their own beliefs and their own polities and their own, you know, trading connections that, that make it less hospitable. Uh, and so it's not, it's not as though Islam just spreads like a, a uh, you know, you see these visual images of things, how world maps develop and sort of having like an ocean of, of uh, a, a veneer of oil or something like that, or cream going out over, over an area. It's not quite like that. It doesn't work like that. Uh, and then, of course, people hold on to their hold on to their own beliefs in important ways, and these, uh, and that in itself is also interesting in terms of how trade develops and how uh, sophisticated areas uh, have have to deal with traders from with different languages. When you've got you know twenty or thirty di- different trading groups coming into a place like Malacca, people have to figure out. How they're going to trade with each other, what they're going to, what languages they're, what language they're going to use, uh, and also how they're going to adjudicate their own problems, both internally and amongst themselves. So this is where I think during this period, it's pretty clear that that while Islam is not a uniform faith or or set of practices, that that the Indian Ocean is clearly dominated by the uh, emergence of different uh, different Islamic communities that that connect with each other in, in important ways. Mm-hmm. And and that's really important to think about uh, conversion as as a process rather than an event, as you alluded. Um, if if we to think about the translation of Islam into regional vernaculars such as uh, Malayalam, Gujarati, Swahili, Malay, and Chinese, um, what bearing does this have for scholars in Islamic studies? Well, it's for scholars. One of the things I, I said right from the beginning when I started working is, uh, you know, it's, you, can, you can, you know, maybe with the exception of Danish uh, or something, you can do Atlantic history pretty easily with a handful of European languages. And if you have, if you have English, French, Portuguese, and Spanish, you know, okay, you won't be able to, you know, it'd be nice if you had Dutch. But you don't, you, you can go pretty far. You can't do that in the Indian Ocean. I mean, one of the things I remember noticing uh, since I had uh, Charles Boxer as one of my examiners, Boxer had uh, fluent Chinese and Japanese, but he didn't know any African languages. He didn't know any South Asian. He knew all these. I mean, he was a polyglot. He knew a huge number of European languages. And he knew some regional languages. But in the Indian Ocean, it's impossible, you know, unless you're the worst kind of old-style Orientalist and say, you know, first learn 30 languages and then come back and do something with them. Uh, there's no way that you, can, that you can do this work by yourself. Uh, you have to draw upon other people. Uh, and that, so I think that one of the beauties of 
this is in a period when collaborative work by humanists, uh, and and here I'm, you know, even though history at UCLA is in the division of social sciences, historians are historians. I don't think, you know, there are some social science-y kind of historians, but we're basically humanists, you know, doing history. And, and more people are, even though most of us still work individually, there's more and more work that people are doing together. And this is, you know, this is obviously a trend now in funding agencies and everything, but there's just no way you can, uh, you can move beyond your own area. And just to, to take a, you were taking, uh, taking Malayalam or, or looking at Western India, you know, you can know Arabic and let's say, uh, well, you can know three or four languages and study your own area so that you can read the indigenous sources. But then if you want to compare it to Bengal or something like that, you're, you're, you're out of luck. <laughs> you, have to learn, you either have to learn other languages or you have to get, you have to work with people or, or you know, at least wait for them to write in English or French or something that you do read. And, and once you get onto indigenous sources, and I've had this problem many times, you know, you sort of say, you contact your friends, you say, can you help me figure this one out or at least translate this passage which looks like it might be interesting for me because I can't do it myself. Uh, quite a, and then, and then, then there's a technical aspect of that. So when, if something, let's say if something is written in, you said Malayalam or Swahili or Gujarati in the 16th century. Is it going to look like, or be in? How is it going to read to somebody whose knowledge of Gujarati or Malayalam is 21st century? It's not a simple matter. Uh, both in both in the trans the actual transcription of the text. And also the interpretation of the words. I just had something just uh, recently. Uh, I, I have an article just was accepted for publication from something I'd been, <laughs> I first started working on about 45 years ago on warfare in northern Mozambique. And there's a an 18th century source which has been published, but in a transcription. And there's a word in it, which looks to be a simple Portuguese word but it's not a word that you can find in any dictionary. So I asked several, one of my former students and several Brazilian friends of mine, and we couldn't, between us, we couldn't come up with a single answer. It just, you know, so, you know, they helped me with one word that they thought it was most likely. It was a, a version of something I, I couldn't find in a dictionary. Uh, but, you know, so, and that's Portuguese. That's, you know, that's, it's not all that exotic. Uh, so when you start thinking about how concepts get uh, translated, I mean, biblical, biblical things are interesting. If you take the Quran uh, or take, and you were asking in Chinese, for example, and I've got no idea how these things would work, but I'll give you a good example of how you know, my wife was raised in a kind of a, a progressive Christian church when she was growing up. So she knows the King James Bible really well. And it really annoys her 
whenever she's, something comes up and she looks to see what the modern translation of the Bible is in modern English, and it's, she says, this is terrible. It's got no art to it. You know, it's, it's like the Lord's a good guy. He looks after me rather than the Lord is my shepherd. You know, whatever it is, things like that. So you've got, you've got levels of translation and transliteration and transcription that are at a technical level, which make this work even more difficult, which is why you have to, you know, which is why you have to work with other people. I think it's one of the reasons that Indian Ocean conferences are so interesting, that people are bringing, you know, keep on bringing different skills and different perspectives to any particular topic that you care to name, unless it's very narrowly defined uh, about the Indian Ocean. Uh, so anyway, that's uh, yeah. So, and I, it, so just to, just to turn it around and say, for scholars in Islamic studies, it would be which is not my field, obviously, but it seems to me that the interesting thing would be how does how does a concept that's let's say we're talking about an eighteenth century. I'll say 19th century, since a 19th century document that uh, that is interpreted, that's got all of the problems of interpretation, could be Hadith or something like that, in, in Arabic. And now it's been translated by somebody into, or let's say it's been translated, it's so well known that it's been translated into three or four different languages. Swahili, Malayalam, Chinese, what would it look like? What are those? Actually, an interesting thing would be, how would you approach those? With the original text on the one hand and the translations on the other. What do they actually mean? If you, if you, you, know, if you get beyond saying, oh, this is a translation of it. So it's great because people in, you know, in Zanzibar who don't speak Arabic can read it, or people in, in you know, South Asia can can read it, and um, that's a very difficult. That's a very very difficult process. Uh, I'm thinking, in some ways, of just you know, again, Portuguese. This set of documents that have been produced in Oman on the Portuguese documents on Omani history. I've been in, having the email correspondence with Pedro Pinto, who is this brilliant transcriber. Trend, uh, of Portuguese, uh, and you know, there they've taken these documents and they've produced them in trans. They've transcribed them, and then they've translated them into Arabic and English. Uh, so they've got the original text, the transcription, to, so that you can read it. And you know, it's it's a huge project which took a lot of money, too. So. These are these are important things, and I think it, you know if, if you're thinking about the future of scholarship, there's a lot there's a lot that remains to be done, and a lot of work, uh, and uh, a lot of opportunity for for young scholars to to work on this stuff. Uh, and uh, so I think that the implications for Islamic history are probably depending on what kind of questions you bring, uh, and that depends very much on on. Uh, 
you know, on on who's doing the who's asking the questions and and uh, and kind of what the tend what the trends are within Islamic studies itself. And I think that listeners will really get a sense of the pl- plurality and the heteroglossia that defines the Indian Ocean. And I was also really struck by the diversity of the actors that you identify in this pre-colonial period, perhaps between Srivijaya, the Kais, and the Ming as all oceanic actors. But right. to move into your subsequent chapter on intrusions and transitions in the early modern period, but keeping to the theme of plurality of thinking of diversity, how might we think about the histories of capitalism from an oceanic perspective? And what do the histories of, say, Portuguese mercantilism or the English Joint Stock East India Company or the Dutch East India Company, Chinese Omani, Hadrami, and Gujarati commercial networks, what do all these histories teach us about capitalism? <laughs> well, there's a big question. Uh, <laughs> uh, obviously, that's not something that I uh, write about in the book. Uh, I mean, I don't say very much about that at all. But uh, I think probably the way to approach that kind of a very smart and very deep question is to think about the forms of merchant capital and uh, and of just of capitalists, forget that, that each of those indigenous, you know, Indian Ocean societies is engaged in and how are they and and then also the the european uh and and then how how each one then intersects with the evolution of capital in the europe you know uh in a marxian and european sense which obviously comes to dominate the world economy. I mean, one of the things I've, one of the things, I'm a good, uh, good friend of, of Philippe Beaujard, uh, who's quite, quite an incredible scholar, it's, uh, it's, as an Indian Oceanist, as a, Malga, as a Malagasy scholar. But, you know, he's, he's somebody who has, has long been committed to a, a world systems view of things. And, uh, uh, from the beginning of Wallerstein's view of this, and then, you know, various people who take up different world systems, uh, Abu Lugo and, and, and Bojar, you know, it's, it's a, it kind of, is, it a sort of obliterates, it comes to obliterate, I think, or it can come to obliterate the local peculiarities of how uh, capital systems work uh, in 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 this case in the Indian Ocean, and so the mo- I mean the the areas where I know best because this is not something I've, I've studied myself or have read as deep as I probably should is long-standing questions about why capitalism as such didn't develop in India and how because if you start looking at how Mainly Gujarati capital systems. Uh, you know there is there, there is a, a, quite a bit of work there, and it and 
And it's very complex. And of course, as British capitalism develops into its you know, more full-throated version, it becomes dominant. And uh, yet it doesn't, and I mean, the interesting thing is it doesn't entirely replace things going on closer to the ground in India. Uh, and I think that's, that's probably, you know, what, what, one of the ways to approach the, the larger question as a whole, uh, that, uh, that these, the indigenous systems of funding, to put it in different terms, trade uh, and production within their own systems, you know, engage at different points uh, in their systems and at different points in, in the mainly 18th to 19th century with, with the emergence of European capital. Uh, this is not, I have to say, this is not something that I, that I have looked at, particularly in this book, uh, but it's, a, it's obviously an, an important topic and, and one that is very much the kind of topic that, that uh, world historians uh, probably ought to be looking at. So it's a good question. Is it something you're working on? <laughs> well, uh, I am looking at capital and labor in the Indian Ocean, so it, 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 it's closely related to my research. Yeah, uh, but, but, yeah. but really, to, to return to your book um, and to really look at the, the, the last two chapters on the long 19th century and the last century, I was really interested in how many changes there were during this period, because in the 19th century, with increased maritime mobility, you also witnessed slavery and piracy and their concomitant acceleration. Uh, you also witnessed massive environmental consequences. And entering the 20th century, you see um, the impact of new energy economics, which some scholars have called the great acceleration of the last century. So perhaps could you speak a bit to the continuities and ruptures that we witnessed during the 19th and 20th century as we move into the age of high empire and decolonization? Yeah, no, that's 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 a good question. Well, continuities are obvious. You know, if you was just stepping back a bit, one of the again uh, part of the argument against the Vasudevama era is clearly that uh, you know trading patterns didn't change all that much. I mean, it took a long time for for that to happen. So there are continuities that go back into the pre uh, pre early modern era to use that term. Uh, but in the 19th century, uh, it's clear that, I mean, there's, there's an increased demand for labor everywhere as so you get, you know, the development of plantation crops and things like, things of that sort. So, you know, the combination of both uh, outright enslavement uh, of the kind that's, you know, best known for, for, for Africa, but also the kind of bonded labor and, and enslavement in uh, all the movement of Chinese into, uh, into Southeast Asia, for example. And then, and then the development of uh, contract laborers, uh, uh, you know, whether or not uh, it's a second slavery uh, of Indian uh, laborers uh, in, in the masquerines and, and then in, in other parts of the world. Uh, there's clearly a, a, a massive change. Uh, and one of the things, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about that is that 
it make it forces you to look at the larger economy. I mean, one of the things that I've always always told students, I said, that whatever you think, you know, talking about the slave trade or talk, lecturing about the Atlantic slave trade, said that whatever you think about, however you want to approach the question of slavery as an ethical or a moral issue, uh, you, you can't understand slavery and the slave trade unless you first consider it as an economic phenomenon. You know, why is there a need for labor? And how do people satisfy that need for labor? So what you can see in the Indian Ocean at that period is that there is a big change that occurs with the development of plantation crops. I mean, Zanzibar is a good example, perfect example of that. But also you can see it in the Dutch East Indies. You can see it in the Mascarines, you know, the big boom in sugar. And, and here's where things link to world history. I mean, you know, the Haitian Revolution takes place and the world's biggest supplier of sugar is suddenly, you know, disappears, uh, basically. And so sugar plantations, which had started and were doing well, really boom. Uh, and But slavery was ending because the British, you know, were on their moral high horse that ended slavery. So they come up with another version. Uh, and you suddenly get this, I mean, I think Mauritius, I, I always say this, I mean, I, I don't know if it's 100% true, but I think that's the, the biggest demographic and most rapid demographic change of any place in the world is the change from, uh, from the, let's say, 1830 to 1880 in Mauritius, which goes from being at least 80%, well, 80% Afro-Malagasy in 1830 to two-thirds South Asian by 1880. Uh, I mean, it's just remarkable, and it's all explained by the needs of the plantation economy. Uh, so there's, so there are there are clearly, you know, there's there's those things. Then there's the whole transport, the opening up of the Suez Canal, and the, and the development of steam, steamships, and what that does, and everything that goes with it, from laying of cable and everything that kind of to create a different kind of connectivity that is not driven by the monsoon regime or the environment in general, or by the needs of the uh, indigenous societies that constitute the Indian Ocean world, but by the demands of empire. Uh, and then of course, the whole you know, steady uh, exercise of British hegemony over most of the area. Uh, that that really is a second half of the 19th century phenomenon. Uh, and then that in turn, of course, leads to further movement of people. Uh, the, and then all the, you know, all the issues that, are, that go with that. Um, and the, and I guess, you know, uh, and the way in which, what's, what, one of the things that I found, I find fascinating, I found is the way in which <clears throat> the struggle against colonialism is necessarily, I mean, although on the one hand you have a, you know, you have a certain commonality so that you, in the Indian Ocean world, the, the way in which India, you know, since, you know, was sort of together with the Dutch with different situation, but the way, you know, India was the first off the mark and how that connects to, uh, because of, India's connect, connections to Africa, how that has a, a kind of a 
pan-anti-colonial connection to, to Eastern Africa, including Southern Africa. But at the same time, each territory really had to figure out its own route and its own particular, peculiar in many cases, path to, uh, to independence. And so in many, in many respects, the uh, anti-colonial movement, the movements for independence, really argued against uh, the integrative aspects of, of the earlier Indian Ocean world. And then what's been fascinating subsequently is to see the attempts to create in a completely modern sense, you know, a state-driven sense with a bunch of state actors with national borders and everything, attempting to connect, to reconnect in, you know, in, a, in an Indian Ocean way that is different from the domination that the, you know, that the West has had for the last, for the previous century. And of course, now it's, it's uh, also fascinating to see the way in which first China, but also India are attempting to exercise uh, larger spheres of influence in the Indian Ocean, uh, as well as the you know, as well as the usual Euro-American you know, Euro powers. So, so there's, there clearly is, is a, a, a big change uh, in how borders were crossed, ideas, the, the exchange of ideas, I mean, it's in some ways, you know, accelerated by new forms of transportation, air, air travel in particular. Uh, but but things clearly changed significantly from from the end of the nineteenth century into the into the current current era, and uh, and there are clearly no clear answers either. Mm -hmm. Thank you for writing these last two chapters because uh, a lot of his uh, earlier history is thought of seventeen fifty as a rupture in Indian Ocean history. And you brought it all, all nicely together to the present moment. And we cannot really give the, the book its due. The book provides such a, an informative, engaging, and really just joy-to-read narrative. And it includes numerous maps, images, a chronology list, also a further reading list, websites, index, and less than 150 pages, which is amazing. Uh, before we move to our last traditional question, um, would you like to read a paragraph perhaps from the book just to give a sense of the narrative to our listeners sure i'd be happy to this is the as it turns out this is the the concluding paragraph uh to the book uh i should say by the way that the 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 specs from oup from oxford for this series were for forty thousand words it's at some point when i was in the middle of writing this, I contacted my editor and I said to Nancy, I said, there's no way I can do this in 40,000 words. So I think this is closer to 55 or 56,000 <laughs> words, but it's still a short book. So here's the last paragraph. The Indian Ocean world that has evolved over 7,000 years is very different today than it was in 5,000 BCE. The dramatic evolution of maritime technology the emergence and expansion of several major world religions, numerous attempts to impose political domination, 
as well as the constant movement of people, goods, and ideas have incessantly worked to transform this vast world region. If the basic geography of the Indian Ocean has been relatively stable, the names associated with its peoples and places have regularly shifted. Yet there are many deep continuities in the Indian Ocean, most notably the monsoon winds that determine its seasons and the ocean currents that wash its shores. Nevertheless, the historic ways in which human societies have nurtured their specific cultures over time, what is often called, quote, tradition, remains significant in this ever-changing world. Never an isolated world region, the Indian Ocean is today more than ever a major world crossroads. Wow, amazing. I, I really love this paragraph, and I think it brings the book nicely all together. Um, well, Ned, Thanks. we've taken... Uh, up a lot of your time. I know you have published a number of edited volumes and chapters after the Indian Ocean world history. Maybe you can talk about them a bit and what are you working on now? You've mentioned a textbook. Can you tell us more about that perhaps? Yeah. So uh, yeah, I seem to have gotten a, a late career, uh, a late year's career in co-editing volumes with various people. And in general, it's been interesting. I mean, it's partly my, it's, I guess it's my style. I, I don't think I initiated any of these, but I kept on being asked if I would co-edit things. So I've co-edited volumes on uh, one volume with, uh, on, uh, well, actually, I've I'd, I'd done a whole bunch of these since, the, since the, the two, in the 2000s, but one on, uh, islands uh, uh, called Connectivity in Motion with uh, Burkhard Schnepel. Uh, and I've done another one on uh, Gujarat. Now, th this was kind of interesting. <laughs> I mean, I am not a scholar of, of Indian history, but uh, uh, I was asked if I would do a keynote for this conference that the uh, uh, Darshak. Uh, Itad Nidhi does. It's a, this is an NGO in Gujarat. And it's done several quite good volumes of essays uh, from big conferences. And the previous one had been the uh, keynoter and co-editor was Mike Pearson. And so I think he suggested me. And so I've co-edited co that with, uh, uh, with an Indian colleague. So I've, so I've done a series of these things which have kept me kind of in the, uh, which have all been Indian Ocean focused. They haven't been Africa focused. Uh, and, uh, and the last one I did, in fact, I just co-edited a second, uh, a kind of a second volume in an odd way, 20 years after the fact of a series of essays about, uh, about Mauritius uh, with Vijaya Tilak uh, uh, and other, and other Mauritian colleagues. So, you know, and I, my skills as an editor are kind of comes from my graduate students too. I mean, I I'm a very close reader and a very close editor, so I I think people like having my critical eye involved in this. So that, that's that's been something that's occupied a lot of my time. Right now, I'm happy to say I have nothing of that sort. I'm I'm a senior editor of the Oxford uh, Research Encyclopedia of Asian history, so for the Indian Ocean. So the Indian Ocean articles that are online are articles that I generated and, and, and 
uh, was final editor, next to final editor on. And I'm also a co-editor on the uh, Oxford, it's a subset of the Oxford Research Encyclopedia on African History. It's uh, encyclopedia on uh, slavery, slave trade, and diaspora that Marty Martin Klein is the chief editor of, and I'm one of the one of the associate editors. So I'm still doing a lot of editing, uh, and the book that I mentioned that's Indian Ocean connected uh, is a uh, is a series of books on uh, teaching world history, and it's. Uh, the chief editor is Antoinette Burton, who you know, does British Empire in India. Uh, and she's done a primer for teaching world history. And Trevor Getz has done one on African history. And, and Antoinette asked me uh, after a conference uh, at uh, Illinois, where she is, several years ago, if I would do one on the Indian Ocean. I, I was just retiring at that point. And I said, you know, I'm not teaching anymore, so I don't see that I should be doing this by myself. So I let me recruit somebody who is teaching, you know, is younger and who's teaching Indian Ocean history. And that, even though he's also an Africanist, it's uh, uh, Dodie McDowell, who, uh, uh, who, you know, was a colleague of Fahad Bashara's and others. Uh, so we're, we're about halfway through drafting chapters for that. Uh, it's called the, the series is... 10 design principles. So we have eight substantive chapters and two on teaching techniques. And that's going to be interesting too, because I mean, I'm happy to say I don't have to, since I'm not teaching, I don't have to take, turn all of my teaching into online teaching, but Dodi is. So there's a, you know, so that's, I mean, the whole, that's something which has changed significantly since we signed the contract for this book, but I, we hope to have a full draft of that by the end of the summer. And then the other things I'm working on are, uh, you know, I keep on working on individual pieces. I'm doing a, uh, uh, I'm just starting an article on cholera in 19th century Mozambique, which is something nobody's ever written about uh, for a special issue of Tanzania Zamani, uh, which is uh, uh, produced by Dar es Salaam, the University of Dar es Salaam. But mainly I'm working, I've been doing a lot of work on, uh, slavery and abolition uh, in 19th century Mozambique. And this is something I've, since I've worked in the Mozambican archives a number of, on a number of occasions, but I was at a conference a few years ago and said, uh, and was working on this paper, looking mainly at uh, Cape Delgado area. And I said, there are other, there are other registers. I've been working with the registry of freed slaves. And I said, I'd really like to see somebody take this up because I'm probably not going to do it uh, to, you know, to look at them all. And uh, Daniel Dominguez de Silva, who's a young Brazilian historian at Rice University, has written a wonderful book about uh, Angola, the Angolan trade. He came up and he said, I'd be happy to work with you on it. And he's trained as a digital historian. He's trained with David Eltis and people at Emory University. So we're working on a book together. <laughs> And uh, so that's another that's another project. And then I have other things I'm still I'm still working on. So it's interesting. My my writing at the moment is more specific, other than the Indian Ocean book. My writing is more specifically back looking at things uh, African elements, but in the Indian Ocean. So I have a chapter on the cattle trade from uh, from Madagascar and the Comoro Islands to Mozambique, 
in the 19th century that's coming out uh, in a in a volume, the last of the volumes that Schnepple is uh, is doing in his Indian Ocean Grant. And I have another one that I've done on the middle passage from the Indian Ocean coast to Zanzibar. And in the uh, after the abolition of the export trade in 1873. So there are things like that that I'm doing that are very much connected to my longstanding involvement with the slavery and the slave trade. Uh, and yet my reading, my broad reading, tends to be on Indian Ocean things. So that, and that includes everything from, you know, promotion cases to manuscripts to just what I want to read. Uh, so, so it's, you know, I'm keeping my, keeping my Indian Ocean chops up uh, because that's, I just find that fascinating to see the way in which things have developed, especially in areas where the Indian Ocean has, as a focus of study, has not been as important as other elements. So Southeast Asia is a good example of that, where most of the, you know, most work is focused either on the peninsula or on the history of the islands themselves. Uh, but it's, other than people like Tony Reed and a few others, uh, it's, it's interesting to see how more and more writing from uh, insular Southeast Asia, island Southeast Asia is, you know, starting to, has been taking in Indian Ocean concerns in the last, let's say, 10 or 15 years. So I, anyway, that's what I'm, that's what I'm doing. And that's what I'm uh, trying to keep up with. And, and it will certainly keep me busy for, you know, as long as, uh, as long as I can, I want to. That's fantastic. And we will be looking forward to all of these fantastic projects and maybe have you again on the podcast. Thank you so much for your generosity and time and sharing uh, your wisdom and your insights with us after <laughs> such a long career and, and writing and publishing. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for listening to today's episode in which we explore the Indian Ocean and world history by Professor Ned Alpers, published by Oxford University Press in 2014. You can find the book on Amazon and other outlets. This is your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi. And I am Kelvin A. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.